0: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ronnie. Appreciate your ministry this morning. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, as we get started this morning, we are looking at this morning strong armor for the believer, and it is, this has been a tremendous study as we have had the the privilege to walk through this, and as when Paul wrote this letter, he wrote his letter to the uh, churches or church at Ephesus, he lingered, he was lingering under house arrest to appear before Caesar. So he's in Rome. He is waiting for that moment when he gets to stand before Caesar. And we can read about this, uh, his two-year wait in the last few verses of the book of Acts. But in the last chapter of Ephesians, we can also see that through him being imprisoned, Paul may have bodily been in prison, but he was free in his mind, and his mind was active as as he was sitting there. Yeah, picture this, if you would, for just a second, and I always, I heard a comedian one time say this, and I'm going to get to it here in a minute, but he is guarded by Caesar's best and strongest men of that day. Paul uh, closely observed all that was going on with them. Could you imagine being the, the, the centurion who is called aside and said, uh, okay, today, John, uh, you've got Paul duty. And they'd be like, oh, great. Like, I got to go and sit and listen to this guy again. But you know what's, what's interesting is we, we find out, according to the, to the scriptures, that many of those in uh, Caesar's household, i.e. guards, came to know the Lord as their Savior because of the faithful, continual witness of Paul. He never quit on him. And we might laugh a little bit about that, that, you know, oh, great, I'm the guy that gets stuck with Paul. But Paul used all of those different things and and brought them in to be a part of his life. So we're talking about the uh, soldier's armor today, studying the helmet. Paul is sitting there and he's constantly got one of these guys in front of him. So he sees the helmet, he sees the breastplate, the belt, the shoes the shield, the sword. It begins to think about battles, perhaps. In a physical battle, the soldiers are prepared well, and they're well protected. But in a spiritual battle, all the equipment would seem to be somewhat useless. They'd be as helpless as sheep being led to the slaughter. And you know, it's interesting that God often referred to his own people as sheep. Let me talk for just one quick parenthesis here about sheep. God talked about sheep, the sheep that wandered off, Isaiah 53. Sheep who are helpless, Matthew chapter 9. Sheep who needed constant and careful care, Ezekiel 34. Faced with a wolf or a lion, sheep are easily and likely to shiver together in a group and be picked off one by one. Sheep don't have claws, fangs, quills, speed, or even a skunk's obnoxious odor with which to protect themselves. On that happy note, our big idea this morning is this. Believers are called to stand firm in the midst of spiritual warfare, by God's power, by God's armor, and with consistent prayer. Now, I told you last week that I was going to break this down into three messages. I changed my mind. I have the ability to do that. So we're going to look at, we talked about spiritual warfare by God's power last week. We're going to look at God's armor this week and this idea of consistent, continual prayer so like sheep we christians can't defend ourselves against a lion who prowls about and after us first peter chapter 5 think about that and at least not in our own strength but thankfully our shepherd has armed the sheep with spiritual armor that can rout our enemies and through the Lord's provision and allegiance, we can be sheep who overwhelmingly conquer, Romans eight thirty seven. So this morning, as we are going to put this together, we are going to begin with the Christian's armor, dressed for battle. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, Paul describes a spiritual battle that rages around Christians every day. He gives us a picture of our enemy. He encourages us to stand against him in God's power. Look at verse 13, Ephesians 6 and verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the devil in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. We may be as weak as sheep and may have to rely on our shepherd for strength, but we are not without a role in this battle. Notice these verbs, the verb of take up and resist and stand. If we're going to win this fight, we'll need to actively participate. And we'll need to stand firm in the protection that God has provided. As we walk through this passage, I'm going to explain each article and then strive to make practical application to this as well. So let's try on each piece of the armor that Paul presents here and learn to wield it with precision and mastery. And we're going to begin with the belt of truth. The belt of truth is found here in verse 14a. The first part of that verse says, Stand firm, therefore, having gird your loins with truth. Now, most of us don't gird our loins these days. We would uh, buckle a belt around our waist. And if you compare that with what the uh, NIV says, it, it literally says, Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The buckle or the belt on a soldier's uniform, however, did more than just make his toga fashionable. It was made of leather, it was about six inches wide. It secured his tunic, that, the material of his tunic, so that he could move and it would not hamper his ability to move around. It also helped in placing the breastplate on as well as a sheath for the sword. The belt kept him free, protected, and ready to defend himself. Our protective belt is made of truth, the truth of God, which is revealed in the Bible and as well as the truth of character and integrity in our own lives. In the heat of the battle, when flaming words of anger are flying above and beside us and a just Unjust accusations are bursting all around us. It's tempting to retreat into a lie and save our own skin. It can seem so much safer to let what is false have the final say. But Jesus wants us to hold fast to what is true because he is truth. Remember John fourteen six. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the life, and I am the truth. That's why Paul urges us to keep our belt pulled tight. Don't loosen our integrity. As Christ representatives, we're to stay true to what the Bible says is right because that's what really makes us safe and secure in Jesus Christ. The second one we want to look at this morning is the breastplate of righteousness found in verse 14. The second part of that verse says, put on... The breastplate of righteousness. The Roman breastplate is a large piece of leather or bronze or chain mail that is covered back and front of the soldier from his neck to his thighs. It protected the vital organs and it was an essential piece of armor. No one soldier would ever go out into battle without it the righteousness that we're talking about here is our breastplate because it assures us that when we have been made right with God through the blood of Jesus Christ, and then we are saved forever. Theologians describe this as positional or imputed righteousness. In addition to this breastplate, like the truth Of the belt, it is also the righteous lives that we live with the Spirit's help. The breastplate of righteousness is as essential to us as a Roman soldier's breastplate was to him. Our enemy, who John calls the accuser in Revelation 12, 10, loves to sling arrows at the heart of our faith, trying to convince us that God can't bridge the gap that our sins have created and tries to pull us back into sin's hopeless grip. But when we stand firm in the knowledge that Christ has declared us righteous and empowers us to live holy lives, the enemy retreats in defeat. The third one we're going to look at this morning here is the boots of peace. We find that in verse 15. Ephesians 6 and verse 15 says, Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Paul had spent many long hours looking at the boots of his jailers. These were an open-toed leather boot with a nail-studded sole. So it was tied to the ankles and shin with leather straps. Now, obviously, these boots were not used for fleeing or pursuing enemies. Rather, they were used in hand-to-hand combat, like you could liken it to today's football cleats or soccer cleats. They were meant to give maximum footing and traction to prevent sliding and thus giving the Romans the edge in the battle in the trenches of warfare. And so they would would have these these cleats on, and it would make them more formidable. Our footing against Satan is our peace with God. Christ secured this peace. We we saw that as we walked through Ephesians chapter 2. Peace not only with God, but it should be peace with one another as well. And as a result of that peace, the Lord will never condemn us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have peace with the Father through the Son. Satan may push all he wants. He may work at trying to convince us that God will reject us and judge us when we mess up. And by the way, we all mess up. But if we know that we are ultimately have peace with God. If we're wearing, if you will, those boots, we will not slip and fall. We will be able to stand firm against the devil's arguments and we'll gain ground against his opposition so that we can spread the good news of peace with people with the good news of peace of God through Christ, to a troubled world around us. Taking the opportunity to share Christ. That is moving forward in that spiritual battle. Number four, the shield of faith. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you are, will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. This shield that Paul has in mind is the Roman shield. It was probably about four and a half feet tall in an oval shape, hide-covered, framed possibly in iron, The leather was soaked in water prior to battle in order to put out the enemy's dangerous incendiary missiles. Those are arrows that would be dipped in pitch and lit on fire. In In the battle, this shield could be locked together to form a wall or a roof, if need be. Now, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, I'm not a great one for medieval battles and that kind of thing and whatever. But the idea is that somehow a soldier could stand with his shield and then lock the next one in, lock the next one in across the front. Okay. They would do the same thing, could lock it in here, turn it this way, and so they could basically build, build that protection, right? Okay, so here's, here's, to me, this is the cool part. So then the other soldiers would come in, and they would take them and lock them and, and put them over their heads. And they basically would build almost this impenetrable shield, you know, massive shield, that would just protect them almost from anything. Now, if you think about there's a famous scene in a movie, and I don't even know the name of it, but there's all these guys, and they're, they're, they fire the arrows, right? And it's just just barrage. This guy's black with arrows. And they assemble all of the shields, and hardly anybody is injured because the shields protected them. And, and as I was thinking through this, how, how cool is that? It would form this wall in front, over their heads, and the flaming arrows of the evil one can take many forms as they're fired at us. Temptation, doubt, anger, pride, despair, fear, guilt, shame, confusion, They also include persecution and occultic assaults. This would be anything that would attempt to tear apart the unity of the body of Christ. How would the shield keep us from such incendiary weapons? One commentator said this, and I thought, I thought man, this is so good. He said, faith in his letters In the radical openness of God allows Christ's full dwelling in in this unfathomable love. He says, take up the shield of faith. Thus suggests a deliberate and positive holding on to the revealed gospel. Firm, resolute, dependent on the Lord which quenches the fiery attempts of the enemy to harm and to spread panic. Through faith, we see our circumstances through God's eyes and trust Him to keep us from temptation and, and from doubt and to stand safely behind the shield of His protection. That ought to do something to your heart this morning, that God is able to work through temptation and doubt, and we are permitted to stand safely behind the shield of His protection. Number five is the helmet of salvation. Look at chapter seventeen, uh, the very first part of that. It just says simply, "Take the helmet of salvation, the Romans' uh, helmet." And I, I did, you know, I, I looked at all the different kinds of pictures and and things on this, and it was made of of leather and brass, sometimes of bronze and iron. Um, they they featured a band to protect the forehead, and a and a plate would come around to protect the cheeks. It, if you'll allow me the the Picture here, it, it kind of looks like a modern day batting helmet. Okay? You guys know batting helmets, right? And they got that piece that comes down, especially on the side wherever the, the pitcher's gonna pitch so that you don't get hit in the head, but this one would have one on each side. Okay? Um, and they were, there's very little left of the head to be exposed to danger. Now, a lot of these that I saw must have been like formal or or something like that kind of um, head headgear because they also some of them had like a thing sticking up and it had a plume on it. You know, I thought, well, they look a lot better in a marching band than it would in battle, and so I, I kind of came to the conclusion that. Maybe that was for parades and and, and and formal things. Like if you're in Caesar's house, you had to wear you know, one of those things with the plume on it. But if you're just an everyday grunt soldier out there, you, you wore the one that didn't have the little foofy thing on top, all right? The Chris, Christian's helmet is salvation. And, and we need to understand that Satan would like nothing more than to aim his arrows at our minds, convincing us that we don't belong to Christ. He would love to rob us of our hope of eternal security, our home of a future with God forever. That that he would like to come along and, and shake our confidence in Christ's ultimate, complete victory over all the forces of evil, without the assurance of our salvation, or that there is anything to be saved from, the battle would not even be worth fighting. But, when we're assured that Jesus is victor and nothing nothing can snatch us out of his hand, then our minds are safely protected from Satan's attack. The picture here is from John chapter 10, where Jesus said, all that the Father give me are mine. They're in Jesus' hand. And Jesus covers us. And the scripture says that God's hand covers Jesus. Now if I was to put a dime in my hand and I was to close my hand as tight as I could and then take this hand and put over the top of it, somebody might be able to come up here and peel my fingers back and eventually get to that dime. But I'm here to tell you there is no way God is failing at this. Amen? Do you understand that? That is the most beautiful picture of eternal security that I know of in all of the scriptures. That picture of me being in Jesus' hand, Jesus covering me, God's hand over the top. Woo! That ought to do something to us this morning. It, it just It's absolutely incredible. What a picture that we see here that nothing can snatch us out of his hands. Our minds are safely protected from Satan's attacks. Number six, the sword of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed that as we've been walking through this, so far all of our defenses, our equipment for spiritual warfare, have been defensive? We're not supposed to retaliate. We're not supposed to return fiery arrows of our own. We're not to take revenge. You find that in Romans chapter 12, verses 17 to 21. Instead, we have only one real offensive weapon, and that is the word of truth, God's word of truth. Look at the end of verse 17. It says, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword that Paul is referring to here was the Roman short sword used in hand-to-hand combat. It's not the, not necessarily the long battle sword. It was more like a short, a shortened dagger. That may be even making it too short, but somewhere, somewhere in that in-between is in there. It was for hand-to-hand combat. It was a razor-sharp, very light sword. It was highly effective in the Roman army's arsenal. That when things got too tight to be able to use the long sword, then the, the, the shorter sword would be pulled and that would be used. So, a Christian sword in Scripture and its principles, which are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And you can think about 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. You know that portion of Scripture. This is why it is so important to study God's Word, to memorize it. The Lord's words have the power of life in them. We need to understand that. We need to recognize that. And, and I know it's, it's sometimes... You hear it so often from your pastor. Read God's Word. Study God's Word. Know God's Word. Memorize God's Word. Do you think there's a reason for that? Do you think it's, it's important for us to, to have a real handle on the Word of God so that we might be able to use it in battle? I've gotten into the habit of carrying my little New Testament with me. And I don't actually have it with me this moment, but I have it in a bag. I carry it with me everywhere I go. That if the opportunity avails itself, I might be able to take that out and use it to talk to somebody about Christ. Are we doing that? Are we doing that? Do you remember what the writer of Hebrews tells us? Hebrews chapter 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far of the division of soul and spirit, joints and morrows, able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let me tell you something. As persuasive as any preacher could be, they will never get to the thoughts and intentions of your heart. As eloquent as any speaker could be, they're not really going to get to that place. It is a place where the Word of God lives. It's a two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. When you go to God's Word, when you are reading it, it ought to cut you to the quick. As God's Word impacts the thoughts and intents of your heart. The Word of God can get into places that you never will by using persuasive words of men's wisdom. It's an incredible, incredible thing. God's words are alive. They're powerful. They override obstacles of human opinion, uh, grasping and sanctifying believers. As the word of grace, life, salvation's God's word does not preach these things, but affects them. So it is with God's word in our hearts and in our hands today, we have the power to effect change, to counteract Satan's destructive forces. The illuminating power of God's word and warning us and wanting us to be able to know how to wield it effectively. Number two, let's talk about the believer's battle cry, and that is prayer. Now, I have said for quite some time that I truly believe that this could also be included as the second offensive weapon in the arsenal that we as believers have. Let's look at this. In this last element, we're going to, uh, again, return to God's strength, not our strength. Look at verse 18. With all prayer... And petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. With this in view, be on alert with all perseverance and petition for the saints. Now, there's two parts to the Spirit-enabled prayer, okay? Number one is that we would pray comprehensively. We need to be praying comprehensively. Prayer above all else expresses our reliance on God. It is not us coming to God with our Christmas list and saying, okay, God, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. That's not what we're talking about. This is a dependence on God in all situations, at all times. And Paul puts forth four universal alls in this verse to express the comprehensiveness of prayer. And here's here's how Paul makes this description, okay? Number one, with all prayer and petition. Our enemy studies our weakness, and he plots to attack accordingly. So we need to be just as precise in the request that we take on to the Father on behalf of ourselves and our fellow soldiers. When's the last time you got on your knees and you prayed about the sin that so easily beset you? Now, I know that within the context of Hebrews, that sin that does so easily beset you is unbelief. All right? I understand that. The bigger application of that is what's the sin in your life that you just constantly are struggling with? When's the last time you got on your face before God and you prayed about temptation? About the ability to not concede to temptation. Whether it's eating too much. I'm a poster child, or it's internet pornography, or whatever, whatever it is, what is it that you need to be going to God and saying, with all prayers and petitions, focused on God and what He can do, and confessing my sin, my, my struggle to Him? Number two is to pray at all times in the Spirit. We need the Spirit's help to know how to pray, to sometimes even have the strength to pray and continue to be praying. Think about Romans 16, uh, excuse me, Romans 8, John 16. And we don't limit our prayers, prayer time to certain times of the day. We need to be praying at all times. That's what's needed in our lives. Well, I prayed for breakfast. That ought to get me through, at least till lunch. No, you have to be praying continually. It's got more to do than just praying at meals. And by the way, sometimes when we pray at meals, rub-a-dub-dub, thank God for the grub, let's eat. Right? It's, It's just that simplistic With no depth. When I was growing up, we had a prayer that we said before all of our meals. It was rote, meaning that we repeated it every single time, at least at supper. And it meant absolutely nothing to me. It was something we had to do to get through so I could eat. That was all it was. Praying at all times. Don't limit your prayers. Pray when you're driving to work. Pray when you're doing anything. Even the most mundane things. Man, I'm going long here. I'm sorry. Number three uh, be alert with all perseverance. We need to pay attention, have our eyes trained to detect oncoming assaults, and no matter what, we have to keep on praying. Not become discouraged because victory seems that it's taking a lot longer than we thought it would. We need to continue to pray. Never give up. One of my favorite uh, parables is, is the one where it's the wicked judge, he doesn't respect anybody, doesn't care about anybody's opinion, and the little widow lady keeps coming to him and saying, I want justice from my adversaries. And the wicked king, the wicked judge, rather, says, I have got to give this woman what she wants because she is going to be the death of me. She won't quit pestering me. I'm going to give her what she wants. And you go on to read that, and Jesus says in there that it's persistence in prayer that really matters. Here's the last one, number four. Uh, this is a prayer for all the saints. We're all targets of Satan's fiery arrows, every single one of us, from the most mature believer to the baby believers. No one outgrows their need for protection against uh united defense that Christ provides. All right, so that was the first part. So here's the second part of spirit-enabled, spirit-enabled prayer is praying for gospel boldness. Look at verses 19 and 20. Pray on my behalf that the utterance might be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So here's here's the picture. Paul is a prisoner in chains, humbly requests prayers from other people. Let me say it again. Paul is in chains, and he's asking others to pray for him. He wants to communicate the good news boldly and effectively. Here, look, look, The reality is the greatest theologian missionary of all times is asking for prayer. That should encourage you and me. He has the position, as we do, as ambassadors for God, representatives of Jesus Christ. But he knows he does not have sufficient resources to communicate the gospel effectively. So he calls on the church to pray for him. Instead of feeling self-pity or resentment, he asks for prayer for the mission. Are we praying for others? as they share the gospel, why would that be important? Because Satan does not want us to have the right words. He doesn't want us to be bold in the face of conflict. He doesn't want us to be bold in the face of our culture. Evangelism, mark this down, evangelism is spiritual warfare. The culture that we live in today, as in Paul's day, opposes it. We usually assume that Paul is fearless and impervious to discouragement, a man who would not let anything stop him. Most of us probably see Paul as a super Christian who is able to be overcome opposition in a single bound. Who would have thought that he got scared too? who would have thought that he needed to cry out to his friends and say, hey, would you pray for me? I'm struggling. When's the last time you went to somebody that you trusted and you said, would you pray for me? Because I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Just at times like these, We need to communicate Paul's, God's power to do faithful witnessing. Paul's a human just like us. Just like us, humble and honest enough to admit his need, admit his need for help. And he knew the Ephesians would be upholding him in prayer. They would be furthering the ministry of Jesus Christ and his gospel to the flag of God's grace in the midst of human misery. Didn't, Didn't we just talk about this in the prayers for Afghanistan? In the midst of all of this suffering, human misery, I mentioned three this morning in my pastoral prayer. Afghanistan, Haiti, and all the people that are affected by the natural disaster of the hurricane. You think that's not some 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 human misery there? You think there's not an opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others? That power to bring the dead to life. That reconciles the estranged under the shelter of the cross of Calvary. Father, this morning I thank you for the opportunity to have opened your word. Father, I just pray that you would continue to work in our lives and that, Father, this morning you would just be honored and glorified. Father, help us to be able glorify you and to be able to effectively communicate your word to others that they might come to know Christ. That we might bust out of these four walls and impact the people around us. Impact our communities with the gospel of Christ. It's goofy. It's just offering somebody a free bottle of water. And being able to begin to plant the seeds. Father, may you do a work in us. Glorify yourself through us now in Jesus' name. Amen.